Good morning. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Maggie asked me a question that I thought um, led well into what we'll be looking over this morning. She said to me, Nick, do you think people at your work know that you're a Christian? That was an interesting question. I was thinking about that. It led to a short uh, but good conversation that we had about the involvement that I have with my coworkers and the extent of our conversations, but um, that's a question we ought to ask ourselves this morning. In whatever field the Lord has us in, whether it be the hospital, the prison, I mean that, the UPS hub, um, the teaching classroom, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and, and you just drop your kids off at school, whatever the case is, do you think people know that you're a Christian? If I could take that question even a step further... Let's just say that you were to make the announcement to these people around you that you were a, a child of God. Do you think they would believe you? Would they say, you know what, that makes a lot of sense. I knew there was something different about you. I remember um, when I was going through DITP, every Thursday we'd go to Texas Tech and we would do some evangelism with the students there. And, and we would uh, go around and, and in order to initiate conversation, we'd have a survey. And we would just go to people and say, we're, we're just trying to get people's opinion on a matter. Would you be willing to share your thoughts with us? And, of course, today everyone loves sharing their opinion. And so they say, oh, absolutely. My opinion definitely matters. People should know. Um, and so we would have these uh, questions regarding the Christian faith. And, and there's maybe 30 questions you could choose from based on how the conversation was going. And one question I always asked was, is there one person in your life that you know that you consider to be a true Christian. And uh, that would always catch them off guard and they'd think about it. And most of the time they would say their mother or their grandmother. But I'll never forget the answer um, of, of one young student I was talking to. I, I said to her, do you know a lot of Christians or a lot of people that would claim to be Christians? She said, oh, tons. I mean, here we are in Texas, the, uh, the capital of the Bible Belt, if you would. She said, oh, tons. I said, well, well who would you consider to be a true Christian? She said, my grandma without any hesitation. And I said, well, if you knew so many Christians in your life, what was it about your grandma? She said, you know, I grew up going to church for years. I knew, I knew what the Bible says. I knew all the stories. And yet I just knew so many Christians who would act one way on, on Sunday. And yet Monday through Saturday, it was like uh, what they believed didn't even impact their life. She said, but when I looked at my grandma, it was like I was reading the Bible. I thought, what a compliment. What a compliment. I mean, is there really a higher compliment someone could give about you? Where it was like, man, I look at how you live your life and it's like I just see the word of God manifested in your life and how you live. And so I want to ask you that question. If, if you were to make that announcement in the hospital, classroom, the vet, whatever the case is, that you were a Christian, would people believe you? Or would they say, well... I mean, I, I guess, I mean, I claim to be a Christian too. What we're going to see this morning is that the faith that we claim to have in the Lord Jesus Christ is not something that we simply claim as our own, but it's something that should impact every way that we live our life. And as a result of that, it should be manifested to everyone. Our faith should be proven uh, to be true to everyone. So if you would turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, 
the uh, title of this message I've given, The Qualifications of True Faith. Because that is what's going to come up in, into question as we look at James chapter 2. What is true faith? And what does it look like? Um, so the qualifications of true faith. James chapter 2, and uh, starting in verse 14. Uh, James says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. But even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the, sp for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Our Father in heaven, we would just come before you this morning, and uh, we're just so thankful that this is your word um, spoken to us. And Father, we're thankful for your word, and we realize that you have given us your word so that we uh, would know you more. Father, we're thankful this morning that you are a God who um, is more than willing to make yourself known to us. Father, when we think of a passage like this, we would tread lightly, realizing that there are some errors that have uh, been brought up because of this passage. Father, I would not pretend that I am able to uh, really sort through any of these errors apart from your help. And so, Father, uh, we really just ask that you would uh, be the one speaking to us this morning. Uh, once again, Father, we're just thankful that you are willing to speak to us. And so, Father, we just ask that you would um, give us ears to hear. Father, I think of what Isaiah would say of the Lord Jesus, where it says that you awakened his ear to hear as the learned. Father, we just ask that you would awaken our ears this morning as well uh, to what it is that you have to say to us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so the qualifications of true faith. Uh, the first qualification we see from this passage is that true faith requires action. It requires action. And um, James starts off by asking a, a, a very simple question. If someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? Uh, in the Greek, uh, the emphasis is actually placed on the word faith. So you would actually read, can that faith save him? If simply saying, I am a Christian, is that enough to be saved? Any of us would say no. That's not enough to be saved. If I were to stand before you and say, you know, last week was a great week and uh, I received a, a small promotion, it was, it was about time, and uh, I am now CEO of UPS. 
you, you wouldn't be able to pay me enough to take that position, by the way. But uh, let's just say uh, I, I said that. You'd say, well, praise the Lord. Can, can we have proof? Is there any article, maybe any money you can send our way to show up? And whatever the case is, now that my income has grown so much, um, would it be enough to be true? And the answer is no. And so, so, so this is the point that James is trying to make to this, this audience of Jewish believers who have come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus. And we, we've mentioned how James is such a practical book, but the question is, why is James such a practical book? Uh, and, and the reason why is James is addressing a group of believers who um, have for years only known generations before them that had very much head knowledge concerning the law and concerning the way God would have them to live, but their lives didn't change. And so now that these people have come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the temptation is to carry that same mentality into the Christian faith and say, well, we know how God would have us live, and we're just going to do it in a mechanical sense. But James is saying, no, there needs to be a change that takes place in your own heart and in your own life that has been manifested um, in the living out of a holy life. And so that's one thing we want to keep in mind as we address this passage. But faith, true faith, requires action. And uh, he uses an example to emphasize this question that he gives. And, and the question is, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you simply says, well, depart in peace and be warned. Well, did you really help that person? Uh, it's believed that James is writing this letter from Jerusalem, and he's writing this letter to believers who are now dispersed abroad outside of the Palestine area. And um, as they're reading this, you, they would realize that in the winters, it gets actually very cold out there. And so the, 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 the imagery would then come into their mind of someone coming to them, a brother or sister, naked and destitute of daily food. The idea is it's not that they missed lunch. The idea is that they're starving. Their, their life is literally at stake. Not only are they naked, but now they're starving. And all you say is, God bless. I'm praying for you, brother and sister. The Lord is good. He's going to meet your needs. Praise the Lord. Can I pray with you really quickly? I mean, and you think, what in the world are you talking about? Oh, would that really help this person in need? And the answer is, without a doubt, no. In fact, First John would say that if... If, a, if I see a brother or sister in need and I have the, the, the world's, um, what is it, the, the world's goods in my possession and I close off my heart from them, John presents the question, is the love of God really in this person? No. And the idea is you have the ability to meet this person's need and you don't. Did you really help this person? You did nothing to help them. And it's the same, James is saying that it is just like as if you were to say, I'm a Christian, but then you don't live, out, live it out in your life. You're just like this person who says, God bless, I, I hope you find a sweater and some McDonald's along the way. I mean, that's what your faith is like. Uh, and you wonder why, why, why don't you hear a lot of series preached on James? Well, well, cause James is very blunt. He's saying, if you're a Christian, praise the Lord, but you better act like it. And that's the message of James. Man, I wish we had bold speakers like James today. We have so many people who just care to sugarcoat it, but James wasn't that person. He says, you better act like a Christian. Uh, I remember um, 
he poses the question, what, what profit is it? Is it really useful? You know, there are a lot of people today who claim the name of Christ that I really wish they wouldn't ever make that an audible claim in their life. Because quite frankly, it does more harm than good. Um, I remember back home in California, I uh, worked construction for, uh, I do believe he's a brother in the Lord, a um, little rough around the edges. And I was talking to one of his employees who had been working um, with him for years, a dear friend of mine who's not saved. And somehow it came up, church, and that, that I went to the same church as uh, this, this individual that we worked for. And he asked me the question, he said, does so-and-so, you know, participate in meeting as well? Does he speak? Does he, he, we were talking about the Lord's Supper and how people share their thoughts there. I and mean, does this person do so? I couldn't lie. I said, yeah, he does. And we just had such a hard conversation about um, how, the, the things that, this, that he had seen in this man's life. Here, here he was, a Christian, who would participate in the worship meeting, who would even speak before the people, and yet Monday through Saturday, this guy would see how he would live his life, and, and there were so many question marks that came with it. Let me ask you, do you think that propelled him to want to know the Lord more? No, it did the exact opposite. Because he looks at him, he's like, well, what's the difference? So James is saying, you carry the name of Christ with you. And so you better act like a Christian, because otherwise you, you, do, uh, you cause more harm than good. And so faith, true faith requires action. Uh, it's interesting, verse 17, he says, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Uh, you see this word dead used throughout uh, this passage three different times. Um, James refers to um, a, a faith that is alone as dead faith. And he actually uses two different words. This word literally means corpse, lifeless. It's dead. Uh, there, there's no use whatsoever. And as James is writing this, um, he, 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 he writes it realizing that maybe someone would pose a question. In verse 18, he says, but some of you might say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. As he's writing this argument, he realizes that someone might say, well, you have what works for you. I have what works for me. And at the end of the day, you know, hopefully we'll all just work it out. I mean, don't you hear that? Uh, I remember uh, referring back to Texas Tech. A lot of people would say, oh, that's how you think of this verse. Well, I mean, that's how you think of it. I think of it this way. You know, at the end of the day, we'll just agree to disagree and, and, and we'll see who's right in the end. And as James is writing this, he realizes that someone will say, well, you have faith along with your works. And we've grown up for years just having works. Hasn't really worked out great for them up to that point. But they're still going to They just say, well, we're going to continue in this track. James says, well, how about this? How about I show you my faith by my works and you show me your works by your faith? And the question would be, well, can you really show your faith apart from your works? The answer is no. Uh, Hebrews talks about how faith is the substance of things not seen, right? So how can you make that which is unseen seen apart from works? Well, the reality is you can't. Uh, There's nothing you can do. And so what James is making this very blunt argument, true faith requires action. If you are a Christian, 
if you are a child of God, act like it. And he continues his argument. In verse 19, we see that not only does true faith require action, but true faith requires more than agreeing with the truth. It requires more than just agreeing with the truth. Verse 19, he says, You believe that there is one God? You do well. But even the demons believe and tremble. Uh, the, the whole idea of um, this one God, this actually comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Uh, it reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, this was the most um, fundamental belief that you would have in the Jewish faith. In fact, uh, the, the Jews, the serious Orthodox Jews have what they call a Shema. And they would recite this twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The most fundamental truth that the Jews would hold. In fact, uh, they would say that this is this faith uh, can be traced all the way back to Abraham. This is what um, Abraham came to believe, and, and that's how he was saved and so on. But this was part of the Shema, which is what they would quote twice a day. And James is saying, you believe God is one. That's great. But even the demons believe and tremble. What you believe is true. There's no refuting that at all. But even the demons believe. In fact, they believe it more than you do. They believe it to the point where it makes them shake and fear that God is one. And the question would be, well, are the demons re- redeemed? Are they saved? No. You see, true faith requires more than just believing the truth. Uh, James puts it in their terms. Can I put it in our terms today? You believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins? So what? Uh, Maggie and I went to a wedding yesterday. It was uh, one of um, Maggie's clients at work. It was a Catholic wedding, the fir- very first Catholic wedding I'd ever been to, as well as Maggie. They had the priest. They had everything, the, the Eucharist, the communion. It was a very um, interesting experience, so we'll put it that way. Um, very involved. I was surprised how involved Catholic weddings are. If you've been to one, you know what I mean. But um, they would say the same thing. I mean, 75% of the people were there, they had the Eucharist, they, they knelt in prayer, they said the things, they, they went up and they partook. You ask them, why did Jesus die on the cross? He died on the cross for our sins. And they believe that. I remember uh, at Texas Tech, uh, the first time we did evangelism, I was so encouraged because we would do these surveys, talk to 10 people, and it seemed like all 10 of them were saved. And I was like, praise the Lord. I mean, about time I come to Christian country, right? Uh, but then the next week, you, you kind of pick up on phrases and how they word things. So you start to pick up on questions to really ask them. And they'll say, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Well, praise the Lord. But, but if God were to ask you why he should let you into heaven today, what would you say? Oh, well, I tried my best. I went to church. I was baptized. And um, I, I really did the best I could. And I think that's, that's why he should let me in. They believe Jesus died on the cross for their sins. What they believed in is true. And what James is saying is what you believe is 100% true. But so what? You see, there's two different kinds of believing that James is addressing here. You see, you can believe a truth and have it be completely true. But if it doesn't impact your heart and your life, it's useless. Uh, Romans 10 says that with, with, with the mouth confession is made unto um, righteousness and with the heart one believes unto salvation. 
You see, you can believe something is true, but if it, is, if it doesn't enter the realms of your heart and impact the way in which you live your life, what use is it? James says it's useless. And so if, if we have true faith this morning, it requires action, but it requires more than just believing the truth. For some of us, that might be a hard, hard, hard thing to grasp, that you can believe all of the right things to be true and yet not truly be saved. But James is saying, if you believe these things, it should impact your life. In other words, your faith should be clearly visible and manifest to everyone around you. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, is our faith manifest to all? Do I allow these truths to impact the way in which I live my life? And it's true with Christians as well. Um, I can believe that the Lord could return at, every, at any moment. Any moment I could, I could believe that, and it's a 100% true fact. But I also have the choice of whether I'm not going to allow that truth to impact the way I live my life. I know it's true that the Lord could return at any moment, but do I live like it? Do I act like the Lord could return at this very moment? And so that's the argument that James is making, that there are two different kinds of belief. And the things in which we believe, do we allow these things to impact our heart and our life? That they would be manifest in a holy life for the Lord, a life of commitment to him. So true faith requires more than requires action, and it requires more than simply agreeing with the truth. Thirdly, the thing we see is that true faith is apparent. It's apparent. And to close off this argument, he um, speaks of Abraham. Now, um, whenever you talk about James 2, this is always a, a passage that everyone's like, ooh, this will be fun. It's be interesting. Uh, it's right up there with head coverings, maybe. You know, uh, it's one of those topics where it's like, oh, there's always fireworks when we talk about this. And um, I told you last time that as we go through James, we're going to come up come across with a lot of things where errors and questions have uh, come up, and we're just going to have to deal with those as we see them. And this is one of them. Um, let's just read it real quick. Uh, verse 20, he says, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? That phrase, do you want to know, it literally means, are you willing to learn? Are you willing to learn that faith without works is dead. Are you willing to learn and admit that maybe the way in which you're living is wrong? Are you willing to admit that? And then he uses the example of Abraham. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. And if that didn't cause enough confusion, he says in verse 24, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now, a lot of people um, have a problem with this passage and rightfully so. Um, all of the elders here, as well as myself, we, we hold the position that this is the inerrant word of God. And yet there seems to be, upon first glance, a big contradiction here. Uh, so turn to Romans chapter 4. 
Romans chapter 4. We're, we're going to do a little bit of uh, turning this morning because this is an important thing to see. Uh, a lot of people, there was a lot of question regarding whether or not James should even be included in uh, the New Testament. Uh, there were a lot of false documents that had come in. And so so James was actually one of the last books to be included because of this passage. Well, there are multiple passages in James, but this was the big one. A lot of scholars would even say that James was written to directly contradict the teaching of Paul. And they always refer to Romans chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, this is Paul speaking, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So here we see Paul making the argument that Abraham was justified by faith and faith alone. And yet upon first glance, we see in James that he's making the argument that he was justified by works and not by faith alone. Nod your head if you see the problem. Do we see the problem? Okay, most people are nodding their head. That's good. Okay, we'll take it. Um, so the, the, the question then that we have to see, that we have to ask is, is there a contradiction? We, we notice that there's a similarity in this passage, and that is the, the verse that they quote from Genesis. They both quote the same verse. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, what we have to notice, and, and I'll allow someone to, to answer verbally, in James, when, when James quotes this verse, that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, he was connecting that to which event in Abraham's life? The offering up of Isaac. Okay, so what we're going to do now is we're going to turn to Genesis 15. And we're going to see, we're, we're going to take a look at uh, Abraham's life. Like I said, this is a, a, a hot topic, so we, we want to be able to see from Scripture, is there a contradiction, or is or are they talking about different things? So Genesis 15. Uh, we see um, in Genesis 12 that the Lord makes a promise to Abraham for the first time. In fact, it's really the first time we see Abraham enter the scene. The Lord appears to him. And we all know the verse that the, the, the Lord basically says, look at the stars. I'm going to give you basically that many descendants. Every nation is going to be blessed because of you. And uh, he calls Abraham to leave the land that he is in, and, and Abraham does so. But here we are in uh, Genesis 15, and Abraham here is 75 to 85 years old. And uh, we see in verse 1 of uh, 15, it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? So Abraham sees a problem. Uh, he, in chapter 12, the Lord has, has promised to bless him with descendants and so on. And from this point on, everything Abraham touches turns to gold. I mean, he's a very wealthy man. Um, he's very successful. And yet, here we see up to 10 years after this promise was initially made to Abraham that he sees there's a problem. 
you've promised me all these things, but I have no one to give these possessions to. And he says, if, if we go on down this road, I'm just going to give it to Eliezer. Does anyone know who Eliezer was? He was, was a servant. He was his, his number one servant. And that was, the, that was kind of how things were passed down. If, if you had all this wealth and no children to give it to, it, it went to your top servant. And, 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 and Abram's like, you know, you promised me these great things, but there's no servant, or, but there's no son, and I'm just going to go to my servant. Um, and he said, it says in verse three, then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one is, one born in my household is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And so here the Lord makes the promise, you're going to have a son. Now, um, drop down to verse six. Uh, prior to this in verse five, the Lord says, look up at the stars. So as many as the stars that you see, so shall your descendants be. But verse six is the key. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So James connects this verse to what event? The giving of Isaac. But we see here that the point in which Abraham believed was not in the offering up of Isaac. But it was when the Lord says, I'm going to give you a son. And so this leads us to believe that maybe Paul and James are referring to two different things. Do we see that? Can we all agree? Nod your head. If you agree. If you disagree, that's okay too. All right. Um, so we're on the same page. Um, what Paul is speaking of, Paul, it, when he speaks of, of, of um, Abraham being justified by faith, he is speaking that that um, Abraham was justified by faith before God. Justified means to be declared right. If we can just um, sim- simplify the term that way, it just mean, it simply means to be declared right. And so Paul in Romans four is making the argument that you are saved by faith and by faith alone, just as Abraham was. He believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But James is using the, the, this, um, this idea of Abram to show that Abram was justified in his faith before man. And we're going to see that. Okay. So they're, they're using the term two differently, uh, the two different ways. Okay. Are we still with me? Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Thomas. Okay. Um, I'm not going to read through, we, we could spend the whole morning reading through every verse of Abraham's life, but we, I, I realize that his life is pretty familiar to us, so we're not going to look at everything, okay? But in verse, in chapter 15, we see the Lord makes a promise to Abraham, and Abraham believes, and it's accounted to him for righteousness. Well then, you look at chapter 16, and it's 10 years now after the Lord has initially made a promise to Abraham. 10 years has passed. Still no child has been born. And so chapter 16 talks about Abraham and Hagar having, a, or um, Abraham and Sarah having a conversation. And Sarah says, you know what, Abraham? You know, God promised us a son, but maybe, maybe God just needs our help a little. So, so why don't you, why don't you take my maid Hagar and have a, a baby with her? And Abraham, being the, the spiritual leader of his house, says, that's a great idea, honey. I, I think I think you're right. God needs our help. Okay, so so then so then they have this whole plan, and um, they end up having Ishmael with Hagar. And the question is, that we have to ask in light of James, is Abraham living by faith in Genesis 16? No. Faith would be, no, honey, 
You're right all the time, except this time. Um, the Lord told us to wait, and we're going to wait. So, but, but instead, they have their whole plan, and they end up uh, going down this, this road. And then as you, you continue to look at um, Abraham's journey of faith, we see in uh, chapter 18 and verse 9, we'll go ahead and read this. This is um, after, um, after they've had their son Ishmael with Hagar. So here's Genesis 18 and verse 9. Uh, this is when the Lord appears to him again. He says, then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So they've just had a conversation now, and they've had their son Ishmael. And now the question is, Lord, is this the son you promised? And and the Lord answers this question, and he says, no, in my timing, you're going to have a son. Um, and it says in verse 10, Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. They were about 99 years old, 99 years old. And here the Lord promises Sarah is going to have a son. Sarah is going to have a son. 25 years after the Lord had initially made the promise to Abraham, he finally has a son. Sarah finally has a son. And, um, but after, after this, this takes place, we then see in chapter 20, we won't, we won't look at this event, but we know the story where, where Abraham and, and Sarah, they journey into the, 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 um, city where Abimelech is. And, and does anyone remember what Abraham tells Sarah to tell them? You're my sister. You're my sister. Why did he say that? What's that? Fear. He was afraid. He was afraid. He he was saying, "Listen, honey, you're you're beautiful. I have this problem with Maggie. I I I go out and I'm like, she is beautiful. She's the most beautiful woman here. And you know. And he says it would just be a lot easier if you just tell everyone you're my sister, because then there's not going to be any 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 temptation to get rid of Abraham so that they can have Sarah. And so so Abimelech hears this and he says, well, great, I'll, I'll take her then." And, uh, and, and we, we, we see this whole ordeal where, where then the Lord appears to him, gives him a bad dream, and then there are plagues that come upon him, and he realizes, okay, something is not right. And Sarah was like, well, by the way, I'm, I'm actually his wife, Shh. you know? And, and, and this causes a whole fuss, and, and, and he goes to Abraham, he's like, why have you brought these plagues upon us? Why didn't you just tell me the truth? He says, well, technically she's my sister, yada, yada. But really, I was afraid. So the question is, is Abraham living by faith up to this point? No. 25 years now have, has passed from when the Lord made a promise to him. He believed the Lord. And yet we see this, this, this hill that Abraham is falling down and he's stumbling at every opportunity. Finally, Isaac is born. Finally, Isaac is born. And if you would turn to uh, Genesis 22, we know this portion. I'm not going to read it. Um, Genesis 22, we, we, we know the story how um, the Lord appears to Abraham. This is now after Isaac has been born. And he says, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him up on a mountain I'm going to show you. Um, 
a lot of people, I remember hearing this story growing up in, in Sunday school, and you see a lot of the pictures of Abraham and Isaac going up the hill and so on. And every picture just seems to present Isaac as like a, a little boy, like six years old, maybe 10 years old is the oldest. Um, but he was actually realistically older. And the reason why we think that is because in verse 5, he says to his servants, you guys stay here and me and the lad, which can actually be translated as a young man, are going to go to the to offer our worship and then come back. And so Isaac now, he's not a little boy. He's really 16 or older. So years now have passed, and we know this story, but I, wa- I want to look at one phrase that we see in verse 3 of Genesis 22. This is after the Lord tells him, offer up your son on a, on a mountain I'm going to show you. Look at verse 3. It says, so Abraham rose early in the morning. And you read through Genesis 22. Is there any hesitation that we see with Abraham? There's no hesitation. I mean, he goes. He, the Lord says, says, Abraham, go take your son and offer him up as an offering. All right, I'm going to wake up extra early this morning. I'm going to go. He, he goes. He tells his servants to stay. Me and my son, we're going to go up the mountain. We're going to offer up our worship and come back. They get up on the mountain. And it just seems like it's just... Event after event takes place. Abraham puts Isaac on the altar, binds him, puts wood around him. He raises the knife. He's about to slay him. And we know the story. But we we know that there's no hesitation from Abraham up to this point. You say, Abraham, what's gotten into you? I mean, you waited 25 years, 25 years of doubting, questioning the Lord. You finally have your son. And yet you're so willing to just put a knife to his throat and kill him? Do you not love him? Maybe the kid was annoying. I don't know. <laughs> I don't have any children, but you know, sometimes I know parents that just go crazy for their kids. Is that the, is that what, is that what's going on here? Well, you look at Hebrews, Hebrews eleven, and it tells us that Abraham didn't hesitate at all. Why? Because he realized that God had made all these promises about Isaac, and if he wanted to, he could raise him from the dead. There was no hesitation. This was probably the single greatest demonstration of faith that anyone has ever done. And here we are thousands of years later, and we're still talking about it. There was no hesitation with, with Abraham at this point. And so that is what uh, James makes reference to. And he, what he says, turn back to James. I promise we'll stay in James the rest of the time. Um, but James chapter 2, in light of this great event, he says... In uh, verse 22, he says, Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works, faith was made perfect? That is complete, mature. It had come to full bloom. It was fully mature. So we see Abraham, he got all these promises from the Lord, doubted the Lord, questioned the Lord, did all of these things. Finally, he gets to a point where he says, You know what? The Lord could take my son. He gave me Isaac freely. He's made all these promises. If he wants me to kill him, I'll kill him, and he'll just somehow raise Isaac up from the dead. I don't know what's going to happen. The Lord has a plan, and I'm going to trust it. And that's that's the whole idea that James is saying. He's saying up to this point, Abraham has not lived a life of faith, and yet he, he demonstrated his faith perfectly, and his faith was made perfect, complete. He was justified. That is, we could look at Abraham's life and say, that is a man of faith. Because he did that. 
And, and what James is saying is people should be able to do the same with us. We claim to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, people should look at our life and see that faith within us. But the, the, the unfortunate thing, and, and I'll say it about myself, is, is you, you put Nick Weaver up against someone from the world and there's so much resemblance they can't tell the difference at all. And James is saying it shouldn't be that way. Your faith should be completely evident. But then he uses another example in closing in verse 25. He says, Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Now, as a Bible student, you have to stop and ask yourself, why does James give two examples? I mean, one would have been completely sufficient. But he introduces this idea of Rahab's faith as well. So why would there be two examples? We see in Rahab's uh, faith in Joshua 2, we won't turn there, we know the story. Um, jo- um, in Joshua 2, verses 8 through 13, this is 40 to 43 years after the people of, of Israel have been taken out of Egypt. So a lot of time has passed. They've, they've been saved from the Egyptians They've, they've created the golden calf. They've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Finally, the Lord says, okay, it's time to take hold of the promises I've given you. They're going into the Canaan and they stop at Jericho. And we see the heart of Rahab in this time. She says, she, she, she receives the spies in and she says, listen, we've heard about your God. We heard about how he, he just systematically destroyed all of the gods of Egypt. He dried up the Red Sea. We've heard about what you did to, to the two evil kings uh, just a few chapters before. We've heard all of these things. And she says, and our hearts trembled with fear. And you, you remember what she says. She says, I'll help you guys out. I won't tell that, I won't tell anyone that's looking for you that you came here as long as you promise that you will save me and my family because the God you follow is the one true God. And, and, and the Lord sees this and he saves Rahab. We know the story how he then takes Rahab and puts her in the line of the Messiah, even though she was a harlot, even though she was from a different nation, but because of her faith, The Lord wanted to show that his heart was for everyone. So what's the difference between Rahab and Abraham? Abraham, it took 25 years for him to fully have faith and and trust God. We see in Rahab, the first opportunity she had, we see that faith come through in her life. And so, the, so what James is saying is, is, is just, just as, um, Abraham was justified in his works, so is, so is Rahab the harlot. Even though it might have taken a little less time, they're still justified in their works. It wasn't simply that she said, you know, I hear your God's pretty great. Ours are fairly decent too. We'll, we'll just see who wins. And, you know, if your God comes out on top, then I'll follow. You know, she says, we don't shot, we don't stand a shot. You know, we have our big walls. But that doesn't mean anything. We couldn't stand against Egypt and the Lord just wiped them out. We have no shot. The only shot I have is if you allow me to, to have my, have faith in your God and to be, um, and to serve him just like you. And notice verse 26. He says, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. That idea comes up again. It's, if you say you have faith, but you have no works, it's just like a dead body. I hadn't really ever seen a dead body until I came here to Kansas. Um, 
and uh, we had family members pass away. There was the open caskets. Uh, we recently had one with Ojichan. Um, and it's interesting, at the funeral, we go to finally say our goodbyes before they close the casket. And, and we see Ojichan laying there. I mean, everything I knew about him, I, I obviously I didn't know him until he was older, but everything I knew about him, he looked exactly the same. But we all knew that that was just a shell of the man he was. Ojichan was with the Lord. What made him Ojichan was gone. And that is, is what James is saying. If you say you have faith, but you have no works, it's a dead body, lifeless. He uses the word dead as well to, to, in, in verse 17 to show that um, it's useless. It has no, no profit whatsoever. And so why would James feel the need to emphasize this to this group of believers? Uh, if you if you uh, read uh, the writings of Alfred Edersheim, he's a um, a Jewish historian. He's a, a great Bible scholar, um, and he talks about how the Jewish people once once they placed their faith in the Lord Jesus, they were ostracized in many ways. A lot of the privileges that they had known, they they no longer had. A lot of families were torn apart. It, it would be similar uh, to a Muslim coming to faith today in the Lord Jesus. And that's the experience they had. And you can imagine these people coming to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus, suffering great persecution. They're now scattered abroad. And now the temptation is, okay, why don't we just take our foot off the gas a little? Why don't we try and just float under the radar? And James says, no, you better not do that. Because the Lord didn't redeem you so that you could just live an easy life. The Lord redeemed you so that you would live a life committed to him and his great love. We sing the hymn, love so amazing, so divine, it demands my life, my heart, my all. We sing that on Sunday morning, but does our life show that on Monday through Saturday? The love of God is so amazing. It is so great, so divine. The only logical explanation is that I would go out and live every moment of my life for the Lord Jesus and his glory. But is that how we live our life? James is saying, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you, 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 better, you better live like it. Because he didn't save us so that we could live a life for our own. But that we would live a life for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you the question again. If we were to announce our faith to the world, would they believe us? Just based on what they see based on the limited interaction, limited conversations we have, would they believe that you're a believer in the Lord Jesus? And if not, what do we need to change? Our Father in heaven, we do just uh, come before you this morning, and uh, we're so thankful for the Lord Jesus. We're thankful, Father, that uh, your word is abundantly clear that we are saved by grace through faith. And it's nothing of ourselves but purely of, of, of the, the grace of, of, of you that you have poured out upon us in the giving of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we're thankful for that. But Father, we realize that uh, there is a great responsibility that is placed upon us this morning, a responsibility to go and live our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory. Father, forgive me for uh, the moments in which I have forgotten that that is my purpose. Uh, forgive me for the moments in which I have um, uh, caused people to, to, to think little of the name of the Lord Jesus because of how I live my life. Father, would you place that heavy upon our hearts this morning, uh, that we would live a life 
worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would live a life worthy of his gospel. Now, Father, we're thankful that it is him that we live for this morning. It is him that we look to. It is him that we wait for. But, Father, we pray that when our bridegroom returns, uh, that he would find his bride eagerly waiting, eagerly ready, and eagerly proud of the coming of their bridegroom. And so, Father, we just commit this morning into your hands. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, for all that he's done for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.